subcommittee will come to order. This is the subcommittee for State Department and USAID Management, International Operations, and Bilateral International Development. That's quite a title. Um, welcome to our first hearing of, the, of this Congress. Uh, the subcommittee's jurisdiction is broad, and our principal responsibility is oversight. Oversight of the State Department, the USAID, U.S. Agency for Global Media, the Peace Corps, the Millennium Challenge Corporation. So this, we have a lot of work to do, and we intend to be very active during this Congress. And I, I say that with we, because Senator Haggerty and I are partners in this effort on oversight. Uh, we joined together in the last Congress, and we concentrated more on the State Department, and I think we were able to get some significant progress made in the State Department on several areas, including training. And we intend to do the same type of work during this Congress together on the oversight of the agencies to make sure that Congress is a full partner in the agencies being able to carry out their mission and to make the types of recommendations we think that can be helpful in carrying out that responsibility. I am extremely fortunate to have Senator Haggerty as my partner. Uh, he understands the challenges through his experience as ambassador to Japan. Uh, we've had a chance to talk about that on, uh, on many occasions, and it uh, really is a pleasure to have him uh, as my co-leader on this committee, and uh, thank you very much for, for your help in that regard. Our first hearing will be on the USAID um, localization, challenges, opportunities, and next step, and further development initiatives on the local level. This is a subject that doesn't get the type of attention that we think it needs to get, because we know that locally-led development uh, gives uh, uh, the ability of the local uh, communities to become self-sufficient, to, to sustain their operations. We know administrative power has made this a priority for USAID. Uh, there's major advantages to moving forward on local capacity. Uh, and the challenge is that today's numbers are about 6% of the resources are used in local development. Uh, Administrative Power indicates she wants that number to be increased to 25% over a four-year period. That's an ambitious goal. Uh, so the question is, how do we get there? And part of it is in the definition of what is local actors. The USAID's definition encompasses individuals, communities, networks, organizations, private entities, and governments, set their own agendas, develop solutions, and bring capacity, leadership, and resources to make those solutions a reality. That's a quote from the USAID. We're going to talk a little bit about that, because we recognize that local Localization, in some cases, there's a disagreement as to what is local. So we'll have a chance to, to talk a little bit more uh, about that. Challenges in carrying out localization. First and foremost is resources. Do you have the capacity to be able to carry out your current mission and do a transition to more local efforts with the resources that are available? We'll talk a little about workforce. Do you have the personnel that can make that a reality? We'll talk about financial risks that are involved and, and accountability. Uh, and the conflicts between local uh, providers and their sites and ambitions and what the uh, USAID goals are. So these are all areas that we hope that we'll have some conversation about uh, during uh, today's, today's hearing. The United States needs a strong agency for international development to advance its interests in the 21st century. 
In order to do this effectively, we need strong local partners. Many of the most serious challenges the United States faces in 2023 and beyond require us to effectively leverage our development initiatives, and local actors play a critical role in this effort. Preventing the rise of authoritarianism, empowering businesses to build economic ties with our country, addressing climate change, strengthening democratic institutions, furthering peace building, and strengthening health systems overseas to respond to global health crises. These are just a few of the development priorities in which local civil societies have the local context and experience required to help USAID achieve these goals. That's our objective. I must tell you, uh, we have a really distinguished uh, two panels, first from the administration and then from the private sector, and we, we welcome you here. You'll get formal introductions in one moment, uh, but we welcome you to this discussion so that we can work together to improve the effectiveness of our international development efforts. And with that, let me recognize Senator Haggerty. Well, thank you, Chairman Cardin, and I uh, likewise appreciate the opportunity to partner with you on this and looking forward to a, a productive Congress. Um, I certainly feel honored to have been able to work with you in the last Congress to achieve the beginning that we have in the State Department, and I applaud you for taking us in this direction with USAID. I'd also just like to acknowledge that um, USAID does business in some very tough places. And uh, a lot of the, you know, by definition, the developing nations where USAID does business often lack the infrastructure to have the accountability the transparency that we would like to see. So I want to acknowledge that challenge up front and say that um, I know that it's difficult uh, as, as we move forward, but that's the challenge that we're embracing today to try to help make that better. The notion of localization is very appealing. Um, it, it certainly, from a person with a business background, smacks of greater efficiency, disintermedi disintermediation of, of, um, uh, of, of sort of brokers and people that go between. Uh, and it suggests to me in the long term that um, we, we could certainly become a lot more efficient with the expenditure of our USAID dollars. I hope we have a chance to talk about um, some of the efforts toward localization that have taken place. I applaud, um, I applaud Ambassador Power and her setting the goal of 20, 25% localization over this administration. I agree with the chairman, that's a very aggressive goal. I would take us back to the Obama administration, and at, at that point, the Obama administration put forward the USAID Forward Program. And at that point, the administrator, uh, Rajiv Shah, sought to localize 30% of mission funding. And obviously, that didn't happen. So I just want to acknowledge this, is, this has been, been tried and has not, has not happened on a broad scale basis. I would like to draw our attention to an area that I think may be an example where this has worked. And as a business person, we always try to find a case in point where we can observe best practices and see if we can standardize on those. And that would be, in the, in the Trump administration, an, an effort called Journey to Self-Reliance, the Journey to Self-Reliance Initiative. And in particular, I think that initiative probably saw greater results as countries got toward their goal of self-reliance. But there was a, a, a particular program there um, in PEPFAR where they made tremendous, tremendous progress, and, and I hope we'll have an opportunity to go there. Uh, with respect to Ambassador Power's goal of, of getting to 25%, I just want to come back and again put a reality check. This is a report, and I'll quote from it, um, the uh, Congressional Research Service reported in January of this year, a very recent report, that, uh, I'll just use the exact words, that USAID has faced challenges in operationalizing its localization work. 
These include potential increased financial risk when working with local partners when compared with U.S.-based entities. Inconsistent definitions of local entities leading to confusion among stakeholders, just as Chairman Cardin said, and potential conflicts between localization objectives and USAID development goals. Um, I, I think that uh, that's a clear-eyed acknowledgement of the challenge that we have to look at. And again, it I, I takes me back from a business background. Let's, let's take a look at what has worked. And Dr. Deborah Burks and Dr. Bill Steiger wrote a report that was published by the George W. Bush Institute uh, just last month, and I'm going to use a quote from that, fewer than 15% of the prime recipients of PEPFAR funds managed by EID were local partners in 2016. But by 2021, USAID transitioned more than 63% of its worldwide PEPFAR awards to these local implementers, and it's on track to hit 70% this year. So I think if we talk about what the next steps might be, um, let's take a hard look and understand what worked and what hasn't worked in the past and, and see if we can learn from that. Uh, and in that spirit, I look forward to hearing from the witnesses today from both panels, um, and I'm certain that we'll have a very productive conversation. Mr. Chairman, back to you. Well, thank you, Senator Hargerty. Senator Rickerson, I want to first of all welcome you to our subcommittee. We've already welcomed you to the full committee, but welcome to the subcommittee. Senator Coons, who chairs the relevant subcommittee on foreign ops, uh, has a lot of um, demands. Um, thank you very much for being part of this subcommittee. Uh, appreciate it very much. Uh, our first witness is Michelle Samilis, who is the assistant to the administrator for the Bureau of Policy, Planning, and Learning, and is UA USAID's lead on implementing the localization initiative. She served as executive director of Bread for the World, an anti-hunger Christian advocacy organization. She also brings to the table her government experience serving as USAID Chief of Staff and Deputy Chief of Staff during the Obama administration and earlier service on the staff of the House Subcommittee on State and Foreign Operations. And I learned this morning that she has roots in Baltimore. Welcome. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you, Chairman Cardin, Ranking Member Haggerty, distinguished members of the subcommittee. USAID is grateful for the support of members of Congress on advancing a more localized approach to achieve sustainability and greater impact from our foreign assistance investments. I appreciate the opportunity to appear today to share our work. When she articulated her vision for USAID, Administrator Samantha Powers said, never before have our fates been so intertwined with those of people around the world. So accordingly, it is imperative that we work hand in hand with local communities as we address both chronic and acute development and humanitarian challenges to achieve progress that outlives our investments. This, is not on, this not only furthers our localization agenda, but it also strengthens the NGOs to be voices for democracy, anti-corruption, and transparency in their own countries. For USAID, localization refers to the actions and reforms we take to put local actors at the center of our work. Localization is a whole of agency effort to understand local systems and our role within them, to address barriers to pursuing equitable locally led development, to reevaluate our risk posture while continuing to safeguard taxpayer resources, to incentivize staff to work more closely with local partners, and to build greater support for localization among our key stakeholders, collaborators, and partners. We want to reiterate as well that we see a continued key role for our existing partners, including international NGOs, U.S. small businesses, contractors, multilateral institutions, and the private sector. Collectively, we are working to change the power dynamics between donor organizations and those with whom we work. 
we want to ensure a seat at the table for local actors, especially those representing women, girls, historically marginalized communities, and others. Localization is fundamentally about putting local context, aspirations, dynamics, organizations, and change agents at the center of our programming. It is about recognizing that development agencies such as USAID do not direct or drive change. Rather, we support and catalyze local change processes. To do this, we want to shift more leadership and ownership, decision-making, evaluation, and implementation to the local communities who possess, who possess the capability, connectedness, and credibility to propel change in their, own, in their own communities. This is part of what Administrator Power calls our commitment to progress beyond programs. To institutionalize this agenda, as you said, Administrator Power established two high-level targets. By 2025, a quarter of our funding will go directly to local actors. And by 2020, 2030, at least half of our programs will create space for local actors to exercise leadership over priorities, activity design, implementation, and defining and measuring results. Next month, we will release our first localization progress report that will include the 2022 data for direct local funding, and it will also articulate the definition and methodology for the second target, as well as for the first target. We see the two targets as complementary. Whom we partner with is a key measure of localization, but direct funding is only part of the story. More broadly, opportunities exist to advance local ownership across all, type, all types of relationships with local actors, whether they are direct recipients of funding, sub-partners on a USAID reward, award, participants in a USAID program, or members of a community where we work. We need to track how we work to create those decision-making opportunities. This new target has been informed by consultations with USAID staff, partners, and local organizations themselves. On the issue of direct measurement, which we will discuss, we acknowledge the complexities of defining a local entity and have been working with stakeholders to make this target as accurate as possible. Our goal was to come up with as good a proxy as possible while minimizing the reporting burden on staff and on local partners by maximizing our automated systems. And finally, as part of all of these efforts on targets, missions and operating units will set direct funding targets for future years, and we will share more about these targets soon. I also want to flag that our target of 25% of funding is a global target. And so in some missions, there will be 70% of funding will go to local organizations, and in other missions, depending on the, where we're working, as you said, uh, Senator Haggerty, we may have two or 3% going to local partners. It all has to be based on the local context. While we, have while we measure our progress towards increasing locally-led development, we, have been, we will remain focused on impact. Increasing our impact through locally-led development is the ultimate reason we are committed to this. Engaging with local partners and communities will create deeper development outcomes, safeguard our investments, and advance the sustainable development goals. While the measurement development process has been ongoing and has received lots of attention, we have also pressed forward with other reforms. We are pushing forward a whole of agency change management process, including reforms to business practices built on lessons learned and ongoing engagement with current and prospective partners. And this is what is different about this effort from USAID Forward. We are looking at all of our systems and making changes. We have released a new updated risk appetite statement and implementation plan. We have updated our agency learning agenda to make sure we're, we're assessing our progress and making changes along the way. 
we've established a localization playbook, which is an internal document for our staff. And finally, we have a new local capacity strengthening policy. And then last week, we released a new acquisitions and assistance strategy. The strategy's overarching goal has three focuses. The first focuses on our staff. The second commits to streamlining cumbersome acquisitions and assistance processes. And the third focuses on lowering barriers to engagement. We have been seeking input on all of this from everyone. Finally, I just want to flag that we are also reducing hurdles to accessing USAID information. And in November, you have to, so, do you want to? You can finish your comment. Okay. We launched the workwithusaid.org website, which provides additional information for local organizations, which has been used by over 200,000 new users. We also just added a sub-opportunities portal to the website. I just want to flag, and I hope I'll have a chance to talk about Central America Locale, our Africa initiative, and some of the work being done in our local missions. Finally, we look forward to working with you, and I want to start by thanking the Appropriations Subcommittee and all of Congress for the additional resources provided to hire new staff. And many of these staff will be making many of these changes that we're talking about, and I look forward to talking about specific legislative changes that we would seek in the new Congress. Thank you so much, and I look forward to answering questions. Well, well thank you very much for your testimony. Uh, the day is the day that the President will be submitting his budget, so it's appropriate first that we start on workforce issues. Uh, in the last Congress, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Senator Haggerty and I made a priority of issues within the State Department. Uh, part of that was training, that we felt that we needed to up our game on training. The challenge is that there was not enough personnel to substitute as uh, foreign service officers did their training mission. So it was a budgetary issue from the point of view of the number of personnel. USAID uses a lot of local contractors and grants, and they're very valuable to you accomplishing your mission. We recognize that. I don't want to minimize any aspect of the tools that you have available. But do you have an adequate number of Foreign Service officers, of FSOs, to be able to um, transition to more being done at the local level where you're going to need to deal with financial responsibility and accomplishing missions, et cetera? Do you have the personnel in order to implement a transition to 25 percent uh, localized? Thank you so much for the question, and I will say that we do not have enough staff, and we're working on increasing that. Um, we are uh, want to thank the committee and the Congress for the additional resources for additional staff um, in the 2022 and 2023 bill, and you'll see the 2024 bill ask for uh, further staff. Um, those staff will be focused primarily on um, uh, contracts, contract contracting officers um, in the field. Um, and we are working also to work much more closely with our Foreign Service national staff and providing opportunities for them to also serve as contracts officers. Um, currently, we have, I believe, about uh, somewhere around 20 or 30 contracts officers who are Foreign Service nationals, and we're looking to significantly increase that number at the local level. They have the context and the, the ability to um, ensure that uh, we're working most, uh, most, uh, most carefully with local partners. So we appreciate the support you're providing. Um, as we, this is an iterative process, and so we are being very careful about protecting taxpayer dollars, putting in place lots of um, checks and balances to make sure that resources are going to the right local partners in the right way with the right oversight. So I want you to elaborate more on the protections to the taxpayers. Uh, as we do more and more localization, 
explain to me how you will be able to ensure that we have the appropriate mechanisms in place for the proper use of taxpayer dollars and that you have an accountability system that this is the most effective way for us to achieve our development goals. So um, thank you very much for the question. This is something that's very much on our minds. Um, one, I just want to be clear that the requirements for local organizations will be no different from the requirements for large NGOs that are U.S.-based or international NGOs. All and, uh, local partners will be, will be required to meet our audit recommendations, I mean our audit requirements. They will all be required to have a monitoring and evaluation plan, and we are setting up processes at the mission level to make sure that this will all be in place. Um, we are also working on creating new support mechanisms, both for USAID mission staff as well as organizations in the field, to help them build up their accounting systems, their HR systems, and all of their monitoring and evaluation processes. I think what we would also uh, flag for everyone here is that there is no evidence that local organizations are any more corrupt or use resources um, in a way that is not consistent with their award more than any other partner that we have. What is often the case is they do not have the same level of information that our international partners and our U.S.-based organizations have. So there are instances where they may take an action that seems like it's inconsistent with our auditing practices, but it's a knowledge issue. It's uh, generally handled very carefully. The other um, thing we're putting into place is new award types. So we're doing fixed amount awards, which are based on progress towards goals in the grant or, or contract. So for example, if I'm a small organization, I will have milestones that I need to reach before resources are released to me, and I will have to provide re uh, receipts and accounting for all the resources that I'm using. So we are working very closely to put this all into place. I would also just flag the new acquisitions and assistance strategy that was released this week. Um, we're all, we have an implementation plan to go along with that, and we're building systems um, in missions and in Washington to help support these local organizations to meet our requirements. I just want to underscore the point that Senator Haggerty made about PEPFAR. Uh, many of us have been to countries that have been the recipients of PEPFAR dollars, and we see the local capacity to deal with health challenges that was just not there before. COVID-19 being one, how the PEPFAR countries were able to do a much more effective job because we built up the capacity through PEPFAR of their handling healthcare issues and the sustainability. I would hope that you could get, and you don't necessarily have to answer at this moment, but if you could get back to our committee, other areas where capacity building could give us the same type of uh, results that we saw from PEPFAR. So we make the investments in building up local capacity where we think we will be able to see big dividends in the future with a country being able to handle their needs rather than needing international assistance. I think that would be very helpful to us. So thank you, Senator Cardin. We will get back to you with more details on that. One thing I would just flag, um, the reason PEPFAR was successful is they really took a systems-based and whole of um, and uh, initiative approach to doing this from the very beginning, working with local partners was a priority. And so that's why this, is, this initiative is really focused on our systems and the ways we work to make sure it can be successful. Thank you. Senator Hackerty. Good. Thank you, Chairman Carden. Um, I'll come back to you, uh, Assistant Samilis. Uh, first, thank you for being here today. Um, I'd like to ask you a foundational question about localization. And Senator Cardin touched on this in his opening remarks, but it's how you define localization. In your prepared testimony, and I'm just going to cite it, you say that it, localization is, quote, the actions and reforms we were taking to put local actors at the center of our work 
to advance locally-led development and humanitarian relief. I think I understand that, but I, I want to contrast that with how the Chinese Communist Party handles their diplomacy, how the CCP handles their foreign assistance and their infrastructure development overseas. And in that regard, it's predatory, it's corrupt. They take advantage at every turn they possibly can. It's coercive. It's often very big and it's always marketed as made in China. And in some parts of the world, I feel like the CCP is outcompeting us by the fact that they play by a different set of rules. And when I served as ambassador to Japan, I had to think about uh, all of our efforts through the lens of our strategic competition with communist China every single day. And it certainly shaped how I had our embassy work with JICA, which is the J Japan International Cooperation Agency, uh, the Japan Bank for International Cooperation, JBIC, which we worked with constantly, uh, how we worked with them on foreign development and assistant, assistance projects in the Indo-Pacific region. I always had to put that lens on it, how we're competing with China. And I'd like to, to come back to you and ask you how USAID, USAID sees its localization efforts fitting into President Biden's overall national security strategy, and in particular, how localization is going to support our strategic interests as we work in the areas where you're deploying your resources. Thank you, Senator Haggerty, for that question. And um, I think we believe that the localization agenda fits very squarely within the um, efforts to counter, compete, and um, cooperate, if possible, with China. Um, we, USAID believe, is really part, very much a part of this agenda. We are the ground game for the United States government in terms of working with our partners and country. Um, so working with, we believe that working with local partners and really creating a new relationship with civil society, with governments, with uh, private sector and other partners in the country will demonstrate that we support a transparent, a cooperative and a, a collaborative uh, way of doing assistance. We hold um, countries and ourselves accountable for results. We work closely and we listen to local voices. We lift those up and make sure they're part of the conversation. So this is very much about wor working with our partners, listening to them, having them see that we listen to them and that we're meeting their local needs and their aspirations. One aspect of the localization concept that um, I think is inspiring in this regard is the fact that you are going to get closer to the people that you're serving. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on how you market the fact that it's the U.S. that's mm -hmm. delivering these resources and that it's the U.S. that is partnered with this local organization. How does the public see that in the, in the nation where you're, where you're actually working? Thank you so much for that question. USAID has over a 60 year history of working in countries. And as you probably have seen on your trips and you will see going forward, we very much are committed to being clear with our partners that this is assistance coming from the American people. It's demonstrated very clearly on our logo with the hands that are clasped together. Um, and we, we work within also branding guidelines. And so where it is safe, where it makes sense, um, all of our partners will be very clear that this is assistance coming from the American people. If we choose not to brand a project, it is for very specific safety purposes and there is a waiver required, but all assistance has that, um, that logo and that, that very much American bent to so it. So you mentioned branding requirements. Is there, uh, it sounds like you have guidelines put in place. Do you, do you have any reports on the effectiveness of our branding or anything of that nature that would allow us to get a better sense for how effective the branding process is? And again, I'm, I'm thinking about it contrasted to the way China does it. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd, I'd be very interested to see, and you, you may need, want to come back to me on that, but uh, I'd be very interested to understand that better. We will come back to you on that. We have um, very definite uh, data and information on that. Um, 
Can I just get a little bit deeper into it? Some examples um, of, of how you're going about the process here. Uh, one of the things that Administrator Power has said is that you need to reduce bureaucratic burdens as a key part of being able to, to localize with local partners. And could you share some examples of the reforms that AID has enacted in terms of reducing bureaucratic burdens and those type of burdens that would enable more localization? So thank you for the question. This is actually a very much part of our work. We're very focused on reducing bureaucratic burdens, not just for local partners, but also for all of our partners. So for example, um, we have uh, made new requirements about how long the initial application for a proposal needs to be. It, it is now, I think, about a five-page document that local organizations need to uh, present to us, and then we'll have follow-on conversations. We're also um, reducing the, uh, we're also making our, our work more available to all of our local partners. So many of our uh, requests for proposals are now translated into local languages. Um, and so local indigenous communities and local partners can see them. They're in Spanish, they're in French, they're in Arabic, and we're doing that a lot as well uh, on, on our website, our new website, workwithusa.org, so people can have um, access to that. In addition, we're doing a, uh, addition, a new awards um, through co-creation. So we're sitting down with partners and saying, here are the goals that we want to reach in your country. Uh, maybe it's a health goal, maybe it's an economic growth goal, and then working with the local partners um, to say, how would you do this? What would make the most sense? And so that way, what we're doing is we're co-creating along the way, and we're not asking organizations to do a ton of work on a project that maybe isn't gonna be um, appropriate to the context. So the last thing I would point to is our acquisitions and assistance strategy, which was just released this week, has a full implementation plan, which has a slew of new um, burden reduction efforts in it, which we'll be implementing over the next year. Or We've two. exceeded the allocated time here, but if I could just leave one more point in the context of something you get back to me with, and it may be part of this acquisition strategy that you just, you've, you've, you've just outlined, but if you could array where you see the low-hanging fruit mm -hmm. in terms of the highest benefit and, 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 and work downward, I would love to see that chart and the impact that you think it would have. I'd appreciate that very much. Thank you. Thank we you. will definitely get back to you. That would be very helpful, I think, for our committee. So thank you. Senator Coons. Thank you, Senator Cardin, Senator Haggerty, um, for engaging in this important conversation. Um, as uh, you well know in your former role at Bread for the World, your previous role as Chief of Staff to the Administrator, um, and now your returned role in uh, policy planning and learning, um, this is a long-standing conversation uh, about the tension between um, using um, highly skilled, uh, broadly experienced, but U.S. headquartered NGOs uh, that have the audit and accounting staff that understand the, the lingo and the process and the procurement um, versus having local NGO partners um, that then build the human resources, the administrative capacity, and are much more likely to be um, delivering culturally appropriate and effective solutions, particularly when the sorts of things we're talking about are public health, which is an intensely human personal in engagement. It's one thing when you're building a highway or a stadium. It's another thing when you're encouraging people to get vaccinated or talking about maternal and child health. Um, so this is a a discussion that's gone on over decades. Um, as I think um, my uh, colleagues recognized and as you referenced, uh, USAID works in some very difficult places um, that are robustly corrupt, uh, where existing um, national and local government institutions are uneven, uh, where the human resources to uh, effectively administer programs in a way that's transparent and meets our expectations in terms of the expenditure of 
uh, public dollars is challenging. I'm very encouraged by the progress you've made. I'd be interested if you'd talk to just a few questions. Um, one is you mentioned in passing a new risk appetite statement. Um, and I'd welcome, having not seen or reviewed that statement, I'd, I'd welcome hearing what that new statement is, what the risk appetite profile you think is, and what role we in Congress play in sending signals. Um, because my concern, and I'll just reference um, embassy construction and security, we had one tragic, um, terrible incident. There were more than a dozen hearings about it, about Benghazi and Libya. And in the years since, I've seen us build fortresses remote from the centers of cities that are really focused not on diplomacy, development, and engagement, but on protection of Americans. I understand that choice, but it was, in my view, one incident, and it's had significant consequences for how our development professionals engage in countries. Risk profiles are driven in no small part by what Congress says and does in a few instances. My hope is that you will accelerate your localization. Um, I just came back from a bipartisan uh, trip to Zambia, Botswana, South Africa. And yes, the PEPFAR experience um, across those countries um, led to significant strengthening of the NGO and national health system capacity. Um, talk to us for a minute about the risk appetite statement. Tell me what, if any, additional legal authorities you think you need, and what sorts of signals whether spoken, stated, in bipartisan letters, um, in resolutions, uh, or in legislation, would help you move towards appropriately investing more in the strengths and skills of the people who would ultimately administer localized programs? Um, thank you very much for the question, and I appreciate you um Grabbing onto that one piece. Um, so the risk appetite statement is something that we actually looked at very early in the administration and realizing that it actually had been built um, to really uh, look at projects and programs of several hundred million dollars. How do we protect, how do we look at that? And what we have done in our updated risk appetite statement and our staff would be happy to update you on this. And we've been actually doing trainings with our staff around the country, around the world on this is we are asking people to kind of look at the relative size of a grant, look at the relative experience of the organization you're working with, look at putting in um, ways of working together where you really can watch the flow of resources. So as I mentioned, the milestones um, option. Um, and we're asking people not to put the same restrictions on grants and contracts of, of 100,000 or 500,000 that they would put on a contract or grant of 500 million. And that our risk appetite statement was written in such a way that both were getting the same types of scrutiny and oversight. Now, just to be really clear, USAID is very focused on protecting taxpayer dollars. We do not intend to have this localization agenda lead to the misuse of resources and dollars. And so we're, we're putting in place processes that will make that clear to our partners. In many cases, things that they are seen, whether it's uh, that are seen potentially as corruption are often just an oversight, not understanding how to keep timesheets for staff. They're just different cultural differences. And so we're building systems and ways of supporting these organizations so that they don't get caught in those kinds of situations. Um, in terms of legal authorities that we would ask that the committee consider, um, some of them are related to this and some of them are related to other things. So for example, um, going back to the question around resources and staff, um, in the appropriations bill, you've given us the authority to use up to 15% of our resources, program resources for administrative, re administrative and operating expenses for Central America locale. 
we would ask that you would consider doing that um, in other regions of the world because that will help us increase the number of staff more quickly, help us hire more foreign service national staff, which is a very big priority of the administrator who really know the local context, local organizations, and can assess where the, where the risk is. We would also ask that you consider additional flexibility such, such as multi-year or no-year money. There's a lot of work that we do that is really um, very focused on getting money obligated and spent. And we do want to spend our resources in a very uh, constructive way, but that often leads us not to work with local partners who require more accompaniment as they understand how to work and follow our rules. So in Central America Locale, you also have language where you give us some flexibility in how quickly those dollars need to be spent. We would also, we thank you and this committee and others for continued support for the new partnership initiative and local works. Those are very important mechanisms that we have, and we'd like to look at less, we are looking at lessons learned internally from those two specific initiatives and applying them to our new way of, of doing business. And then finally, I would just ask um, one thing for, that, we're, that we're working on is we are infusing localization across all of our sectors of work. This is not just about doing localization on climate change or on health or in education. It's across all of our work. We want it to be the first way we work with partners and countries. Um, and so we, are, we sometimes do experience um, some the need for flexibility on sectoral earmarks because in some countries people would rather uh, to address their issues they really do need resources to work on education versus water and we're very restricted on what that issue might be um, I will stop here because I think I'm probably over time but I do have an example a country example that might be helpful in that context um, thank you uh, Michelle I'd welcome hearing that from you and mr. chairman I regret I, I have to go. You have some very talented people behind you um, who uh, I just wanted to give my best regards to, and I know uh, you'll get remarkable testimony uh, from Bill O'Keefe, among others. Um, and so I look forward to staff sharing the testimony that you'll deliver today. Great to see you. Um, thank you very much. Senator Ricketts. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ms. Willis, thank you very much for uh, joining us here today. I have some experience, a little bit of experience, with um, development in Nepal. There's a foundation there called the Z Foundation that has been there a long time. And they are, in my opinion, very successful because they work with the local partners. It's a, it's a, uh, they're not working with USAID. Their model is that they go to a village, they ask what the village wants, whether it's toilets, water, school, some, in one case it was a grocery store, and they partner with the village to ask them what they want and then require the village to put in 50% of the sweat equity, or put in the sweat equity, essentially, to be able to, to build whatever they want. And then they provide the materials to be able to get it done. And in my opinion, it's been very successful. It is uh, one of the things that they, for example, were able to do in, in one small village that was about five days from the nearest road and about two days from the nearest airstrip by walking, because there's the only way to get there. Uh, there wasn't any roads or any way, other way to get there, at least at the time, and this is in 2008. Um, they were able to build a school for about $17,000. I came back a few years later, and USAID had built a hospital there. My recollection, and you gotta take this with a grain of salt, because this is what I was told at the time, and I don't know how accurate it was, I never followed up with it, so just take it in a ballpark, of like two hundred fifty dollars or $500,000. And to me, I was like, how could you have possibly spent that much money? 
And granted, it was a hospital, not a school, so it was a little different. But when we took the tour, it didn't look that different, right? This is very rural Nepal, very remote Nepal, hard to get to. So I think that the opportunity to be able to be more effective and more efficient and use local partners is really a good idea. My question is more along the lines of, do you have a model like what the Z Foundation does where you can, rather than parachute in and say, hey, I'm going to give you blah, 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 a hospital, do you, do you work with the local places where you want to do development, ask them what they need, and then require them to put in some of the you know, sweat equity, to some of the, you know, actually some of the work, so they've got buy-in and ownership? I know one of the things the Z Foundation did that was very successful is like, for example, when they built a school, they required the village to form a PTA to hold the teachers accountable because generally the teachers come from Kathmandu and they were not keen on staying there. So they, they really worked with the local community to make sure that the community could then run that um, operation afterwards and be successful. So could you just tell me a little about how you think about this localization effort from a tactical, getting it done, working with the local community? Um, thank you so much for the example, and I, I love that you actually have a country example, because I think that's really what makes this all come alive. Um, so a couple things I would say. One is that we, um, we do do a lot of work um, with local communities, and we're trying to get our, our staff to do more. And I think part of it is there are a couple things we're doing. One is we are um, doing a lot of co-creation. So if we know that, we have, that we're working on a water project in a particular part of a country, we will, we will reach out to local communities, we will talk to local NGOs, local governments, the national government in many cases, and ask what kind of a way of doing this work would work the best. Um, I will say, and going back to the conversation I just had with Senator Coons, in some countries we are restricted on the types of programs we can do because of the limitations on the kind and flavor of money that we have. Be happy to speak to you about that. Um, but that does limit us. In some countries, we only have uh, money to do certain sectoral projects and not other projects. Um, uh, let me give you two examples, um, perhaps. Um, in Kenya, we are working with county governments um, and developing MOUs with their 25 counties. We currently have MOUs with 11 counties to say, what are your priorities as a local government and how can we help support that? That effort is run um, and overseen by our foreign service nationals who are from those counties in many cases. And we are trying to then take the money that we have, depending on the flavor of it, and apply it most um, appropriately to the, those county priorities, working also with local civil society. Um, I'll say also we have a project in Honduras. It's called the Genesis Global Development Alliance, which was, which was created and co-created and is being implemented by local private sector foundation, very much probably like your Z Foundation. It's called Funadea. And the, in that work, we are working to increase opportunities for vulnerable populations, including youth and returned migrants, um, to reduce their, to, to provide opportunities, economic growth opportunities, education, training, capacity strengthening. So our support for that project was leveraged an additional $14 million that the private foundation was able to raise. And we feel like it's, um, we understand that it will be on a yearly basis reaching 75,000 children. So what we, um, as I said earlier, the administrator has a, a new way of working, which is called Progress Beyond Programs, which is to say we have program resources, but how can we leverage those resources, either from local foundations, local governments, other donors, other foundations here in the United States, to really amplify the impact that we can have. So we're working very carefully to do that. All right, great. Well, I will note I'm over time. I just wanted to add one little note as well. When the Z Foundation, for example, was building the school, one of the things they did is they posted everything, you know, getting back to your idea of transparency. So they posted 
uh, on a board so all the villagers could see it, how much sweat equity had been put in by whom in the village, and then how much money had been allocated to the uh, village and how it was being spent. It wasn't just given all at time, you know, given all at once, and, and, and the materials that were delivered and that sort of thing. So, uh, again, just I think there's maybe things to be learned from some of these small um, nonprofits that are doing development work in these countries because they have to be accountable for their dollars as well when they're getting it from private donors. So, anyway, just food for thought. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Senator. That's very helpful. Uh, Senator Booker. Sir, were you going to pass me the power and let me preside while you go down the hallway to another meeting? Not, not quite yet. I was hoping to have the power, sir. <laughs> as, a, as a junior senator from New Jersey, I rarely get such moments. <laughs> You're going to have to wait a little longer, uh, I'm afraid. <laughs> story of my life in the United States Senate. Wait. Um, let me just first off by saying what an extraordinary career you've had. You've dedicated yourself. You, you do things that would make most Americans truly proud, but most Americans have no idea the kind of impact you're making on the globe. And I know you have a team of those kind of folks. Uh, I just want to say, start off by saying how deeply grateful I am for the work you do for humanity and in the name of the United States. You make us a stronger nation. Um, I still remember when uh, General Mattis was here and said that famous quote, uh, as if you cut the State Department, I'm going to need you to buy me more bullets. Um, and when you are doing things in countries that stop uh, um, the things that often cause political instability, people don't realize that the dollars we expend in the programs that you do, uh, we get a big significant return for that as well. So thank you for just being that kind of patriot for our country. Um, I, I, I love the, uh, your testimony. You had a whole uh, a section at the very end, uh, very gently trying to say to us, uh, you know, where you need us to act. So I want to end with that, if I can foreshadow sort of uh, on your, uh, what you called, I think that your, your section was called the uh, congressional flexibilities. Uh, so I want to end with that. But I want to talk uh, about, and I was so interesting hearing uh, Senator Ricketts. Um, so I have a lot of my friends who do philanthropy on the sub on the subcontinent of Africa, on the excuse me on the on the uh, 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 sub-Saharan Africa, and one of my friends who's was uh, led major corporations of names we know, who's really now dedicating his life to that work, is frustrated because he, he they de-Americanized their organization to stop the sort of colonial to really get local legitimacy. They only have one or two Americans now involved in this organization. And he has frustrations that they have to go through a subsidiary that takes a pretty high VIG, uh, um, which he thinks is an obnoxious amount of money, just to get USAID grants, so even less of it's going to the folks. And so this idea of localization, I, I'm just wondering, in that context of how do we, um, again, he's done all the research, he's found some, an organization that gets the highest bang for his philanthropic buck, but he's wondering why American taxpayers aren't able to get their money to get the highest bang. They get it reduced by this amount of folks. And I'm wondering, what, what are the, what's the hope I could give someone like that who's just wondering why USAID is basically saying, we can't give to you? Well, um, thank you, Senator Booker, for that. And I will just say that Senator Cardin called out my Baltimore roots, but I've also spent every summer in South Jersey. So I have deep Jersey roots as well. So. You're, you're reaching, and I respect that. Uh, <laughs> I'm just seeking like a little grace here. Um, so what I would say is I think this initiative is what you should share with your, your colleague. What we, you know, we are working to move significant amounts of money um, to local organizations. We're currently at about 6 or 7%. We will later this month release the report 
and we'll have new numbers, but this is really about finding the organizations like the one your, um, your friend has been working with and saying, how can we work with you better? What kinds of support can we give you on the back end in terms of accounting, auditing, human resources, et cetera, to make you eligible for the resources that we have? So this effort is reaching as far as we can. As I said, the workwithusa.org website is a very strong resource. Over 200,000 new users have come on. Of those, many of them, I think 60, over 60% 60 are local organizations, and that will have lists of opportunities for people to apply for local grants. So I, I just would encourage them. Also, I think we are working with our missions and our mission leadership to um, urge them to get out of the fortresses that Senator Coons was speaking about into local communities, working with local people and hearing about these local organizations that are effective. So I think this is the hope, uh, and we, we hope that people will, will apply, will receive resources, and then this will be more sustainable development. Great. So, you know, one of my uh, best friends of life uh, is actually a very conservative uh, individual, gives lots of contributions to my friends on the other side of the aisle, but his philanthropy, uh, and, and one of the reasons I love him, is he was looking for the best ways to make a difference with his dollar, and he finds it's, it's local health systems in Africa. And um, you know, in, in one of my heroes in America, a guy named Ron Finley says, in South Central we have drive-bys and drive-throughs, and the drive-throughs are killing more people than the drive-bys, because the number one killer of vulnerable populations in the United States are, are issues that deal with health. And so USID's localization efforts are, are really focused on strengthening health systems uh, uh, and helping the communities have the resources and the ability to continue their global health progress. Um, in particular, what is being done uh, to support and equip local health workers uh, who are really the front line of the defense, uh, uh, not only in stopping death at rates that uh, are other, uh, often other issues, even wars, uh, don't amount to, but also uh, my concerns are global pandemics are local issues here in America as well as uh, global issues that we see in developing countries. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna bet that my colleague Bill Steiger is going to give you lots of strong examples of how the Global Health, um, uh, Global Health Bureau and PEPFAR are working very closely with local partners. What I would say is the Global Health um, Bureau is very focused on local health workers. There will be an initiative, I believe, in the budget coming out later today from the administration that focuses on how can we strengthen local health workers, how can we make sure uh, they are paid, they are resourced, they are trained to do what, they're, what they have been asked to do. Um, and I will also say the Global Health Bureau has taken a specific interest in this initiative. They are holding conferences, trainings, discussions with their local partners and with their local staff and the U.S. Foreign Service officers to talk about how they can increase their percentages as PEPFAR has done because there's a very, uh, a, there are common denominators across all that work and we look forward to being part of that effort. So in my uh, time, I'm trying to be more like Senator Haggerty uh, and less like Senator Coons. You guys can tell him I said that in going over my time. Uh, but, but at risk of, uh, of now pushing the chairman uh, could you just end, if you had two big wishes as we are doing this, just for the record, just re-emphasize maybe perhaps from your testimony, what would be the two big wishes you have from us as we look towards our, our legislative role? 
So these are not approved by OMB, but I will put them out there and, <laughs> okay. and you all can uh, help me later. So first I would say we would ask um, for the ability to use up to 15% of program funds for administrative and operating expenses so that we can further support the localization effort. I think that is uh, very, very important. And then I think the additional flexibility on multi-year and know-year know -year funding so that we have additional time to work with local partners who need the accompaniment to be able to apply, to be able to implement, and to have the results that you all are looking for. So thank, thank you, you for that opportunity. To, to my favorite Jersey girl today. <laughs> you might want to consider spending a little more time in Tennessee. I'm just, just <laughs> that, that is wise counsel. <laughs> Anything for I have one other thing. I want to... Senator Hargerty. Um, So is it not on? Okay, is that good now? Sorry. Ambassador Power gave a speech at Georgetown talking about the burden on your contracting officers. In fact, she said that the average officer at AID has a burden of the dollars managed. She compared the dollars managed by a contracting officer at USAID to a counterpart at DOD and said about 4x the number of dollars managed at AID versus DOD. And I think she was using that as, as a way to underscore the fact that there's a real shortage and a hiring problem in terms of getting the competent people to do the contracting work. So I, I, as, a, as that is context, I'm trying to get at something I've seen happen in the corporate world. If you take the value chain from the dollars that are being distributed from AID and you use the grants under contract construct, that is the Amer you get a, an American company as an intermediary, they do the work and then they, they hire or subcontract a local firm. If you think about the dollars flowing through there and the process that happens, let's focus on that American intermediary for a minute. And do you have a sense for how many AID alumni are employed by these intermediary firms now? Um, I don't have a sense of that. I know that there are alumni who work for many of those organizations, but I would not want to, to offer a percentage or anything of that. I, I would just say that it, this is an ecosystem of assistance. We require US-based organizations to help us achieve some of no, our no, goals. No, I get that. I, here's, what, here's my next question, though, and you'll understand where I'm trying to get. Yeah. If we knew the, the, the extent, I'd, I'd like to know it, but it, is there a big pay gap between what one can make as a contracting officer at AID versus what they could make if they jumped over to the other side and became an intermediary? Again, I, I don't know the difference. I don't want to just I don't want to offer an, a, a pay gap um, number because I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. To be honest with you, I'd be interested in following up on this at some other point if you could think about it. But the question I've got is whether the intermediaries siphon your talent and make it almost impossible to ever mm -hmm. uh, you know fill the bucket, so to speak, because there's this constant pull of intermediaries who are extracting value in the chain and playing you know basically playing a lot of the role that the contracting officer might otherwise play, but you've got overburdened contracting, overburdened contracting officers on the one hand, this intermediary, and then you've got the, the, the localization goal that we're trying to accomplish. I'm just trying to get at what that intermediary is doing and how it's impacting your ability to deliver. Um, we would be happy to follow up with your staff on that and to provide additional information. Okay, thank you. Uh, Senator Haggerty, you're raising a very uh, important point. I know Senator Menendez, chair of our committee, and Senator Risch, the ranking member, have been concerned about the relationship between DOD and State Department as it relates to the responsibilities of this has been in, uh, in uh, 
in foreign military um, arms sales, but it's also beyond that. And the capacity within the State Department has been eroded. The capacity within DOD has been strengthened. So it would be good, I think, for us to understand your capacity on contracting uh, and also the relationship between what you're able to compensate versus the private sector. I think that would be important information for our committee. So if you could get that to us, it would be helpful to us. Happy to do that and, and uh, appreciate the question. Thank you. Senator Booker, anything further? Um, um, no, sir. For the uh, respect of the time, I think we should uh, let the, this extraordinary public servant retire. Not from, retire. From, from, this <laughs> from, this, from the hearing. <laughs> from the hearing. Samantha will, Ambassador Power will kick my butt if I'm telling you. <laughs> thank you very much for your testimony and thank you very much for your service to our country. We appreciate it. Thank you. We'll now turn to our second panel. Let me introduce them as they are coming forward. Uh, we first have uh, Bill Steiger, who is currently a global health consultant at the George W. Bush Institute and recently was chief of staff at the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID. Previously, he was managing director of Pink Ribbon, Red Ribbon, a public-private partnership dedicated to the fight against cervical and breast cancer in the developing world, Dr. Steiger also served as director of the Office of Global Health Affairs at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and a special assistant for international affairs to the secretary of HHS. Thank you very much for being here. Next, we have Elena Aquina, who is the U.S. Executive Director of Peace Direct with over 15 years of experience in international development and peace building. She brings and on the ground perspective of supporting locally driven initiatives, in particular on women's empowerment. In Kenya, she served as head of the key coordination secretariat between the government of Kenya and 17 international development agencies. She is currently the chair of the Board of Women of Color Advancing Peace, Security, and Conflict Transformation. Our concluding witness will be Bill O'Keefe from Catholic Relief Services, Executive Vice President for Mission, Mobilization, and Advocacy. Mr. O'Keefe has also served as director of CRS's flagship program, Operation Rice Bowl, director of church outreach for CRS and director for government relations. So we will start uh, with Mr. Seiger. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Bless you, Ranking Member Haggerty, members of the subcommittee. I'm grateful for the invitation to discuss localization at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Diversification of USAID's partner base should be an urgent priority, given the continuing concentration of the agency's portfolio in a small number of hands, essentially an oligo oligopoly of large US-based and United Nations implementers. When I started at USAID in 2017, just 25 implementers managed 60% of the agency's funding for acquisition and assistance, and 75 organizations controlled 80% of funding across all of the agency's portfolios. Despite a series of policy changes and major pushes from both administrators Mark Green and Samantha Power, these figures have continued to move in the wrong direction. Transforming this model into one that prioritizes relationships with entities based in the countries where USAID operates should be a bipartisan policy goal. This was a major focus of the journey to self-reliance in the last administration. On ethical, financial, foreign policy, development, and public diplomacy grounds, it is imperative for the United States to localize our foreign assistance. Robust civil society, 
private sector, and faith-based organizations do exist around the world today that are delivering services and capacity building right now, and they should be the agency's primary recipient of funds going forward. Large US-based partners will always have a place in USAID's work, but the current situation is unhealthy. I endorse and applaud Administrator Samantha Power's vision for localization. However, I believe the administration should be even bolder, more ambitious, faster to act, and more directive and prescriptive, especially with USAID's overseas missions. Fulfilling the administrator's vision will not be possible without continuing and expanding fundamental reforms to USAID's business practices, cultural norms, and distribution of human and financial resources, many of which began under Administrator Green. USAID already has the legal authorities and other tools necessary to pursue a comprehensive localization agenda and does not need congressional action, with the possible exception of the authority to create a working capital fund for acquisition and assistance, which I'm happy to discuss. And relief from appropriations directives is another matter, which I would also endorse. The agency has remarkable legal and regulatory flexibility to innovate in its procurement, but too often it chooses not to. USAID's own staff, especially in the field, want to pursue innovative approaches, but are often stymied by restrictions and inertia in Washington. The key to achieving localization is to unshackle the agency's contracting and agreement officers to allow them to innovate freely. The President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, PEPFAR, as many of you have already mentioned, demonstrates that localization at scale is not only possible but transformative. PEPFAR also shows us that getting locally-led development to take root requires unflinching leadership, culture change, clear measurement, and a willingness to take risks despite opposition from entrenched interests. My written testimony offers a number of specific recommendations for how to bring that spirit to USAID, recognizing that this process will not move at the same pace in every country. However, focusing on the administrator's goal of putting 25% of USAID's current portfolio in local hands must not detract from the pressing need for the agency to change its business model, practices, and culture regarding the other 75% of its awards. Now is a perfect opportunity to instill a culture of greater programmatic risk-taking across the agency to attract new ideas, new partners, and pay for results, including through greater partnerships with the private sector. The agency must use procurement instruments across its entire portfolio that are flexible, nimble, and lessen the burdens for both its own staff and implementers. In particular, category management is squeezing out innovation at USAID right now. A radical approach to the transparency of procurement data is needed also to allow us to understand whether our tax dollars, localized or not, are having the impact we expect. The bottom line is that the localization of our foreign assistance benefits both the population USAID serves and the US taxpayer. Local organizations are closer to the issues and understand local needs and priorities. They have earned legitimacy and trust in their communities. They build lasting capacity, self-reliance, and sustainability. And in an era of great power competition, our assistance to local groups is more likely to be visible and known to beneficiaries and the public on the ground. And local organizations are cheaper. Finally, I should emphasize that increased staffing is only one and not even the principal barrier to success in localization. Just adding more contracting and agreement officers at USED without changing policy, risk tolerance, lines of authority, incentives, and senior personnel in key places will not lead to the desired outcomes. USAID must retain and make better use of the staff it already has and continue Administrator Green's efforts to make grant making and contract making the responsibility of everyone at USAID. I believe the purpose of foreign assistance is to end its need to exist, as Administrator Green said. This goal is hard to achieve without localization. I thank you for the opportunity and welcome your questions. That's an incredibly valuable testimony. You didn't seem at all nervous sitting before me. 
Um, <laughs> it was hammer time now, sir. Uh, and you, you were, your, your, your poise was incredible. Uh, Ms. Aquino. Thank you, and good morning. Chairman Cardin, Ranking Member Haggerty. Excuse me, it's, it's Chairman. Sorry, I'm so sorry. Yes. <laughs> Chairman Booker. Thank you very much. <laughs> Ranking Member Haggerty and other distinguished members of the subcommittee. Thank you for inviting me to speak with you today about USAID's commitment to localization. My name is Ilana Aquino, and I work with Peace Direct, an international peacebuilding organization. At Peace Direct, we take a different approach. We do not maintain country offices. Instead, we find and support courageous local people dedicated to stopping violent conflict and building lasting peace in their communities. We accompany, support, learn from, and partner with organizations across Africa, the Middle East, Asia, and South America. Our work to shift attitudes and practices among policymakers and donors has moved us beyond the field of peace building. We are keenly aware that the entire international development, humanitarian, and peace building system needs to reform if it is to deliver better outcomes for the poorest, most marginalized, and conflict-affected communities worldwide. Local leadership is key. We welcome Administrator Power's commitment to respect the dignity of the individual and localized USAID's efforts globally. We also recognize this committee's important role in ensuring this shift is meaningfully implemented. Before discussing the challenges, opportunities, and next steps, it is important to be explicit about who should be considered local. Peace Direct disagrees with the definition put forth in the ADS 303 directive. In our view, this directive offers a loophole for international organizations to qualify as local when they, in fact, are not. Early last year, we worked with other prominent INGOs to develop a set of definitions which differentiate international from local organizations. I've included this set of definitions in my written testimonial. By not addressing this, we risk skewing and distorting how USAID measures its success in this endeavor. Civil society organizations worldwide have high hopes that USAID will make good on its commitments. Those hopes will not be fulfilled if funding is channeled to INGO subsidiaries or country offices. According to a recent report by research organized by Publish What You Fund, only 5.7% of USAID funding goes directly to local organizations. This is woefully inadequate. Local civil society organizations are often the first responders to any situation, and local community leaders are the ones who remain when international organizations inevitably move on. USAID colleagues in various country contexts have shared with me that they are proud of specific efforts, efforts that have been made um, that they've been involved in to provide aid locally um, and directly to local actors. But they've also shared that these tend to be the exception rather than the rule. Um, though there are some challenges we must address, out of respect for time, I'm only going to highlight a couple. A more comprehensive list can be found in my written testimony. First, flexible funding. Here we mean the idea that funding for local actors be what we call local first funding. Flexible, inclusive, respectful, trustable, uh, sorry, sustainable, and trust-based. In fragile context, dynamics can change daily, if not hourly. Adaptive funding models ensure local organizations remain nimble and have a sustained positive impact in the communities they are serving. Finally, racism. By this, we mean the deliberate or unconscious exclusion from resources and opportunities due to race. Through many global consultations with local actors, we at Peace Direct 
believe that we must address systemic racism throughout international development, humanitarian, and peacebuilding efforts. Racism creeps in in numerous ways, big and small. For example, in the assumption that local civil society organizations do not have the capacity to develop responsive programs, therefore justifying the reliance on international organizations with country offices. On opportunities, there are many opportunities to further locally-led development. Again, with respect to time, a more extensive list can be found in my written testimony. First and foremost, it's recognizing that it is possible. Peace Direct has employed a locally-led approach to peace building since its inception in 2002. Taking a locally-led approach demonstrates a profound commitment to the autonomy and dignity of ordinary people to be agents of their own destiny. Finally, there is significant momentum worldwide to transform the international development, humanitarian, and peacebuilding system's efforts to be locally led. The United States has a unique opportunity to lead and shape the future of international development in ways that, for the first time, would answer the call of the world's marginalized communities. Nothing about us without us. And lastly, on next steps, we must work together to address the challenges outlined here and by others to ensure that we meaningfully employ a locally-led model. This requires having difficult conversations on dismantling systemic racism. It also requires willingness to take smart risk, and it requires increased investment and budget for USAID to ensure the agency has the capacity it needs to meaningfully implement this model. I want to take the time to thank you, Chairman Booker, and Ranking Member Haggerty, and the other distinguished members of this subcommittee for organizing this vital hearing. I look forward to responding to any questions you may have, and I'm also open to working with you in partnership to actualize and implement a locally-led model. Thank you for that excellent testimony. Mr. O'Keefe. Thank you so much, Chairman Booker, and uh, Senator Cardin in absentia, and Ranking Member Haggerty, members of the subcommittee. On behalf of Catholic Relief Services, the International Relief and Development Agency of the Catholic Community in the United States, I want to thank you for calling this hearing and for your leadership in addressing global poverty and injustice. Humanitarian and development assistance are at a crossroads. In one direction, we can continue to do what we have done for decades, underestimating and underinvesting in local organizations in favor of international organizations, INGOs, and contractors. In the other direction, we can seize momentum and advance more locally development and humanitarian response. Rooted in our values, Catholic Relief Services encourages the US government and other bilateral and multilateral donors to take the second path, which we believe will vastly improve aid efficiency and effectiveness, lead to more sustainable programs, provide a foundation for more resilient systems, and weave a stronger web of civil society organizations providing services alongside governments, holding those same governments accountable, and building stronger democracies. USAID has led efforts to promote localization, but has yet to make enough progress. Reports to Congress show that roughly 1% of USAID's humanitarian assistance and 7% of all its assistance were obligated directly to local entities in fiscal year 2021. Shifting resources and power to local leaders requires political, economic, social, and cultural changes across the aid system. We believe conditions are ripe for real change now, though. One, local actors are ready. Some argue that local organizations lack capacity. We firmly reject this assertion. While every country is different, every situation is different, responsible, capable local organizations are ready to take on more leadership roles in many instances. INGOs are ready. Faith-based groups like CRS, 
Secular NGOs and coalitions like the Modernizing Foreign Assistance Network, of which we are a part, are ready to support a vision of a more locally-led future. Donors are ready. Over the last several administrations, and we've heard examples of this already on this panel, USAID has committed that working more equitably with and through local entities is the path forward to sustainable impact. Congressional support, though, is required to seize these opportunities and build momentum. We urge this subcommittee, working with appropriators, to take several actions. One, follow the money. When local actors access direct funding, they can invest in their own capacity, expand their programming, and enhance their influence with governments and donors. He who has the gold rules. Congress should require the administration to report on funding to local entities through the annual appropriations process as in the last two years. In addition, so local institutions can lead in new ways, Congress should ensure USAID invests in holistic capacity strengthening. Second, measure what matters. Creating a uniform and honest definition of local entity coupled with annual tracking of progress over time is critical. The Aid Transparency Group Publish What You Fund recently released a report entitled Metrics Matter, showing that different definitions of local produce dramatically different calculations. What we measure and how we measure it will be critical in determining whether progress is real. Catholic Relief Services agrees with the definition that um, Ms. Aquino uh, gave a few minutes ago and has worked with Peace Direct and other groups uh, in similar efforts to, to clarify what we consider to be local. Congress must provide oversight and should also evaluate State Department funding of truly local entities as well. Breaking down silos, local partners often implement both humanitarian and development responses, but efforts to advance their leadership are siloed. Congress should encourage USAID to harmonize localization strategies within USAID and then with state and other donors and across contexts and types of assistance. Operational policies and practices must facilitate local participation. Finally, digging into the details. USAID has developed strong policies to advance locally-led development. Additional time, money, and human capital will be necessary to properly implement these policies and accurately report progress. Partner with USAID in a bipartisan way to remove barriers to entry for local groups, such as unreasonable award sizes, unwieldy and inflexible procurement mechanisms, and excessive compliance requirements that large INGOs like CRS have spent decades building capacity to manage. Don't let this moment pass. I want to close with a quick story. In Nigeria, CRS led a USAID-funded $40 million project to improve services for orphans and vulnerable children. The project strengthened the capacity of 49 local partners from state government, local civil society organizations, and community-based groups, improving their technical, administrative, and financial management skills. By project's end, 10 of those partners transitioned to prime recipient status for direct donor funding. This effort allowed hundreds of thousands of children in their communities to receive quality services provided effectively and sustainably via local institutions and local government. This is the second path. Thank you again for your time, and I look forward to your questions. Truly um, phenomenal testimony. In deference and respect to my uh, friend and colleague, I, I, I want to offer you the opportunity to ask questions first, sir. Thank you, Chair Booker. Appreciate that. Um, 
I'd like to start with you, Dr. Steiger. Um, and given your time in government as chief of staff at USAID with uh, the outstanding administrator, Mark Green, um, I would like to just get some foundational questions answered with you about development and localization. Um, and I touched on this in my previous set of questions, but from your perspective, um, how did the agency view its localization efforts under the Journey to, to Self-Reliance initiative that uh, I touched on before? Um, and how did, how did you view those localization efforts fitting into the administration's national security strategy? And in particular, did you see development and localization as supporting our U.S. and allied strategic competition with communist China? I'd like to know what the lessons learned might be. Absolutely. Thank you, Senator, for the question. The answer to your question is yes, simply. Localization was a key part of the journey to self-reliance because it's obvious to us that building long-term sustainability, long-term self-reliance on the ground means working with local organizations first and over the long term. It's hard to do that with intermediaries. There is a role to play for U.S.-based organizations to be umbrellas, to be to be mentors, to facilitate the kind of relationships that Bill talked about that CRS did in Nigeria. But over time, and with specific metrics, those kind of relationships have to move on to transition to full ownership and implementation uh, by local organizations. And one of the main reasons for that is visibility. As, as you know well, the Communist China, China, Chinese Communist Party and others of our adversaries are excellent at branding their assistance on the ground. Everyone knows what that flag means with the red stars on it. What, even to take a more benign example, everyone knows what the rising sun of the Japanese flag means when they see it on a building, on a bridge, mm -hmm. on a hospital. Our logos are often, even the great one that is from the American people, are washed in a sea of other logos and colors, mostly from our implementers. This is particularly true when we use United Nations organizations. It's hard for people to see and feel what we do when we use intermediaries. Local organizations are far more likely to give us credit, and they're far more likely to be involved in programs that show local people that what they're receiving is from the American people. So we saw it as an integral part of trying to counter our adversaries on the ground in this great power competition. Can I stay on the lessons learned topic for a few more minutes with you, and I'm going to extract a quote from your testimony to, to put it into context. You stated that USAID already has the legal authorities and other tools necessary to pursue a comprehensive localization agenda and doesn't need congressional action, with two possible exceptions, including the authority to create a working capital fund for acquisition and assistance. The challenges the agency faces in localizing its portfolio of awards are self-imposed as USAID often chooses not to exercise the authorities it enjoys. So you could elaborate a bit on that. What authorities exist that are not being exercised, and what can we learn from that? Absolutely, and I will follow on many of the things that Michelle Samilla said. The agency over time has imposed upon itself a series of bureaucratic processes that make it very difficult for contracting officers, agreement officers, innovative staff in the field to really use what is an extraordinary set of procurement authorities that USAID has an agency, mm -hmm. as an agency. I, I would say that there is virtually no other entity in the federal government that does procurement at this scale that has the flexibility on paper that aid does. Uh, one example is, is a marvelous, almost magical authority called other, other transactional authority, which is the ability for the agency to take 
almost any kind of money and create almost any kind of relationship it wants to within certain legal boundaries with, for example, private sector entities. It has a slew of new, not even new, of innovative ways of doing awards with small and local organizations. She mentioned fixed amount awards, but there are fixed price contracts. There are other kinds of um, relationships with, with uh, local entities that can be drawn up. And for a variety of reasons, the, the agency's procurement infrastructure, it's the bureaucratic node of uh, the Management Bureau's Office of Acquisition and Assistance is extremely conservative in allowing people in the field to use those authorities to work directly with local organizations. Are, are, are these limitations published guidelines? Are they rules that have been made? Or are these informal limitations? This is part of the problem. So we and this administration have worked very hard to make the documents around these issues pretty clear, to the layperson anyway, that things are permissible. It is a cultural and perhaps even philosophical problem that in many cases what holds people back is not the letter of the policy or the regulation, but someone's interpretation of that regulation, often shrouded in myth or in legend. And so you have people who will take the letter of a policy or the federal acquisition regulation, go to Washington and say, we would like to do this, and they will be discouraged from doing so by people who aren't really on board with the idea that the agency should be doing things in a new and innovative way. Thank you for your testimony. Mr. Chairman, back to you. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm, let me first apologize. We, we have um, the safety issue in regards to the um, rail spill in the Environment and Public Works Committee today. So uh, um, part of the watershed comes into Maryland. So it's an issue of public safety in our state. So I apologize for uh, leaving the committee, not hearing your testimony directly. Mr. Keefe, I'm going to start with you because you know, CRS is critically important to our development goals globally, but you're also important to my community. So I, I thank you for what you do. I, I really want to understand from you, uh, you know, I look at CRS as having a similar mission that USAID has, that you are globally engaged for the, all the right reasons and uh, your, your values are our values. So as we move towards localization, which uh, we all support, what are the risk factors that it could uh, affect your ability as an institution to provide the services that you're able to do today? Thank you, Senator. Um, that is a great question. I think we, in some ways, are blessed with having a network of partners and operate in a localized way in most countries already ourselves. and so. As our partners have gotten stronger over the years, our role has constantly evolved. And I think we're confident that as USAID has more direct relationships, as we help to strengthen capacity of more of our partners, we will be play a critical role, but at a different level. So for example, rather than focusing on particular health uh, clinics, we'll focus on improving the health system. So in the Gambia, for example, we uh, have a global fund project that for a number of years was working with the Ministry of Health, their Office of Malaria Control, to build their capacity. And under that project, our, um, the, the malaria incidents dramatically dropped. And more importantly, in some ways, the ministry was able to take over running of that, of that operation. And so rather than us providing the malaria, uh, uh, direct malaria, uh, response, 
the government is now able to do so in a sustainable way. And we'll be playing a role at that kind of higher level. We are not afraid of a new world where we have to adapt and compete at a higher level. And I look forward to doing that and as part of the community in Maryland as well. That's helpful. As, as, uh, we, we really appreciate your input today, but we, we invite you for continuing input to, to our work as we try to get this right. Uh, we want to make sure that we don't compromise the current uh, tools that we have, that we all are working on the, on the same way. Ms. Kino, I was interested in your testimony that you seem to be supporting the USAID administrator and that they need greater capacity in order to implement this. So uh, I, was, I was interested in the, the lack of capacity, but if they move forward, how does it affect your work? <laughs> Thank you for that question, Mr. Chairman. Um, so the lack of capacity at USAID, I, I think, is pervasive um, in terms of being able to really um, implement this. And um, what I would say, I, I'm just back from, from Columbia, where I had the privilege of, of meeting with our USAID staff there. Um, and it's unclear. It seems to me that it's unclear for staff at the local level um, whether, whether these directives should be implemented immediately, um, what's the timeline for implementing this, what are tools that they can have um, at the local level to, to understand deeper what's happening in communities. Um, so in general, I, I don't get a sense that there's a lack of willingness. I get a sense that there needs to be more training um, and more support. Um, as Mr. Seiger mentioned, there are tools that are available, innovative tools that USAID does have. Um, do all uh, imp uh, our, our staff, at the USAID staff at the local level, know of these tools um, and how to use them to support local communities? So all of that working better would certainly help um, for this locally led agenda to be delivered. Thank you. Mr. Seiger, you, you've seen this up close and personal. You've heard the testimony today. You hear the administration wants to move to 25% localization. Tell us your greatest concerns and risks in the way this poli these, these policies could be implemented. Thank you, Senator. Mr. Chairman, the, the greatest risk is that the 25% target, which I support, and, and I actually think it should be higher, becomes an excuse for the agency and some of these larger partners to believe that business as usual can continue with the other 75% or the other 50%. These reforms, as Michelle Samil has alluded, have to cover the entire portfolio, whether they are awards with local partners or not. Otherwise, this initiative, as its predecessor in the Obama administration, will end up getting pigeonholed and sidelined so that local works did a lot of good things. And USA Forward did a lot of good things, but the agency was able to basically surround it. Its antibodies came out and surrounded that good initiative and kept it as a very small niche enterprise at the end of the day. This can't afford to fall into that trap. So I think the more that the agency from the top down moving to the local level can extend these reforms to the entire portfolio, including the humanitarian assistance, by the way, not just the development assistance, then it has a greater chance of surviving. I think that's a key point. I mean, I, I, we are talking about changing a, a delivery system, and if it just is used as an addition and we don't really integrate it, it, 
it loses the reason why we're doing this. It becomes then a set aside or, or dollar number rather than it becomes part of the ingrained way in which we're meeting our development goals. I, th I think that's an extremely important point. Thank you. Senator Haggerty. Um, I want to thank you for the holding the hearing today. I already had the opportunity to. Sorry, thank you. Thank you for holding the hearing today, Mr. Chairman. I've had the opportunity to question this, this group of witnesses. I, I just say this. Um, we obviously have a lot of work ahead of us in terms of um, helping modernize USAID's approach, too. I, I uh, appreciate the approach that Ambassador Power is taking. Uh, the localization direction from a private sector perspective makes so much sense to me. And to the extent that we can learn lessons from the past and um, help the organization accept uh, a new vision, I think we can achieve something great here. So I look forward to working with you on this more. Thank you. And I thought you started the hearing with mentioning PEPFAR, and I know there are differences, and you can't use one example, and we made a huge additional investment when we, when we did PEPFAR, but the results speak for itself. The local capacity is there, and it's making a huge difference. So, uh, and I think uh, the, the last comment that was made about whether we can ingrade that type of local responsibility and capacity into our foreign assistance, uh, development assistance programs, really is what localization is about. So uh, I think we all support it, but it will be interesting to see whether they have the capacity and the, I guess, the sustainability to make this work uh, throughout uh, our development assistance goals. And as pointed out, some areas it's just not possible. We recognize that. So we have to be sensitive to the local communities. And as, as you very ably pointed out, um, building that capacity creates or yields dividends well beyond the initial purpose. And I think we've seen that take place and very much appreciate that observation. I hope we have metrics that can capture that broader benefit as we think about the investments that we make here. Uh, Mr. Chairman, could I also just make a request to enter into the record two written statements that were voluntarily submitted by two individuals. Um, David Berteau, President and CEO of Professional Services Council, and Alessandra Bow. Alessandra Drabo, West Africa Regional Director at Search for Common Ground, if I might enter these. Without objection, those two statements will be made a part of our record. Thank you. Uh, the record will remain open for questions for the record till close of business tomorrow, Friday. Uh, we'd ask our witnesses uh, to please respond promptly to those questions that are submitted for the record. And with that, I want to thank our three witnesses, uh, not just for your participation here, but for your commitment to global issues that are so important to uh, our national interests. So thank you all. And with that, the subcommittee hearing will stand adjourned.